0: And it's taken from Romans chapter 12, verses 10 to 13. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints given to hospitality. Amen. Our Father, we come to you uh, needing to know uh, how to walk in this world. We we need to know, um, we need a light for our feet, a lamp for our path, and we need to know how we ought to navigate in a world that's become more and more cloudy regarding what is right and what is wrong. Help us to see here that the grace that we have, that we stand in, the mercies that you've showed us, The life that we are to live of self-sacrifice, presenting ourselves to you, living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you, are defined in certain categories. There are certain virtues that define that life that we ought to live in accordance with. And so I pray that we would see that this morning and that you would help us, Lord, live our lives In accordance with them, and so become salt and light to the world as we so much need to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. I'll end in a very familiar place here as well. Jesus is speaking there, the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, You are the salt of the earth. For all the controversies surrounding the Christian's relationship to the law of Moses given at Sinai and how we relate to it or not, the New Testament makes it clear that our standing in grace, the mercies of God upon us, necessarily produce good in us. That is good fruit. In other words, every Christian lives with the responsibility of how we ought to live. How, the, how we ought to produce fruit in light of the grace wherein we stand, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only do we have that obligation, but we have the ability because the Holy Spirit dwells with us and is in us. So we can obey. The list of duties or virtues that we'll consider this morning are not necessarily like we would see in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Nevertheless, they are directives. They are directives given by God, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle to every Christian to pattern our life in accordance with. They are duties, and at the same time, they're virtues. These duties and virtues come on the heels of what we considered last week in verse 9, true love and indeed they continue building on that foundation and first of all we see this morning a kindred love in verse 10. The text first says there in verse 10 at the beginning portion of the verse love one another with a brotherly affection. Now the ESV here is a good translation but it lacks some of the depth of what Paul is actually teaching us and so in fact, one of the only translations I could find that used a word that was very helpful in understanding what he's teaching was the King James. It says, be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love. You'll notice that both the King James and the ESV use two words that describe love there, affection and love. The reason they do that is because there are two Greek words here used that describe Just that, a sort of affection or a sort of love that we ought to have among ourselves within the church. The first word that we're very familiar with with is actually the the second word in the sequence, and that's uh, Philadelphia. We oftentimes think of that as brotherly love, although it's not limited to brotherly love. What it means, essentially, is a familial kind of love, a very close love that we ought to have. The other word is less familiar. It's philostorgos is the Greek word, and it's rendered here in the King James, it's rendered kindly affectionate, but even that doesn't necessarily speak to our minds as as to what it actually is saying there in the Greek and in probably that ancient form of, of English that the King James uses. The word kindly doesn't compute exactly the meaning to our minds because we usually think of Kindness is something that is culturally uh, derivative of meaning that we we show extra civility to somebody. You show a a measure of extra favor to someone else. This is what it means to be kind. But the reason I think the King James translators use this word kindly to uh, equate with that the affections is because it comes from the root word of kin. What is our kin? The word kindness comes from the idea of our kin relationships, our familial relationship, our kindred, our family, naturally speaking. So Paul is here using two terms to double down on the sort of love that Christians ought to have amongst ourselves. He's saying we ought to be in, have brotherly affection, but we also ought to love each other in a full kindred capacity. And this is, as we think of this in Mother's Day terms, we can come to the concept here that he's speaking in a, in a broader sense of family relationships to where we look out on this congregation and we can see that we have a whole family here. Not just brothers and sisters, we have mothers and fathers, as it were. Meaning, there is a love that we ought to have for one another in the family of God that we ought to reverence each other with this sort of love that is kindred love. How do you relate to your family? Usually, very, usually naturally, we relate to them in an innate love. We don't have to think about this is the way I ought to live towards my mother or father. Usually, in a, in a right way, there's an innate quality to that love. And Paul is saying the same thing ought to be true within the church. We must love each other as a family. Because, first of all, we are a family. We are a family. What did the apostle say back in Romans chapter 8 regarding the Holy Spirit? We have the adoption of the Holy Spirit. We are sons and daughters, children of God. And that means everything that belongs to God, we are inheritors of this. This is not merely uh, symbolic language. This means our entire eternal future hinges upon us being children of God and therefore fellow heirs with each other, brothers and sisters in the family of God. Christ being our elder brother, as it were. He is the one in Hebrews that took upon himself our nature. He became like us so that he could redeem us. You know, we are going to be in, in eternity more essentially related to each other than even our own kin now. In Christ, this new creation that he's doing is going to be completed in our glorification. And I'll tell you, there, the relationship that we have Right now, the physical relationship will be transcended to where there will be perfect unity among the body of Christ. And so this is not some sort of just love this way because it sounds good to the hearing. This is who you are. You are family. Love like it. Now, some of you might say our family is really rotten at love. So maybe we shouldn't, but the point is here is not to see love in its failings, in its sinful failings, but to see love in its redemptive value through Jesus Christ. If he's our brother and he's the object of love that we look to, he's the example, that's how it ought to permeate in the family of God, loving in this sort of way. And this also teaches us that Love for one another in the church. Though it be sometimes difficult, because he's admonishing us to love this way, it should come to us as sort of a natural quality. You should love the brethren. If you don't, you don't love God, John says in his first epistle. But we have to be reminded of this. We're not perfect yet. Sometimes we do things to each other still as believers that we find very offensive still or unloving. And so... Sorrow and, and forgiveness are part of this loving. When we offend one another, we go to that person and we try to make things right. We ask for forgiveness. We seek their well being. This love is not just the love as we come to services and we just use a bunch of words. This is also love that ought to be shown, as we talked about last week. How do you love your? Brother and sister, your mother and father, if they were in need, would you not meet it? And we'll come to that at the end of this list of duties and virtues. Exactly how that love is to be lived out among the saints, among even those who are strangers among us. But I want to point this out because sometimes we're guilty of not loving in this way because we only see things in a temporal or a fleshly manner. You know, we only look at each other and we see, oh, they look like us or they don't look like us or they they came from the background that I came from. They have all these physical attributes or qualities that I like. I like these things. They like these things. So we're, we're now, I can get along with this person. And so we tend to limit ourselves within the body into little groups or little cliques and people that we tend to more naturally get along with. And we ought to strive to get out of that. There's nothing wrong with being in, in, a, in a state of life that you're more comfortable with talking to people, generally speaking, but to love people as a family, you need to strive to get out of that bubble. You know, God has gifted you, remember verses 3 through 8, in a particular way to bless people in this church. And don't put a restriction on who that is that you ought to bless, that you ought to be willing to bless. As Christians, our unity doesn't come through our lived experiences, skin color, ethnicity, language, upbringing. It's far deeper than that. What is natural for us is spiritual, mystical, even heavenly. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. He is the bond for all of us. Christian love for one another must not depend or find its emphasis on physical likeness or unlikeness, but on our union with Christ. He came to save the nations and to bring them all together into one body, him being the head of us. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says this about this massive division that was there while the law of Moses reigned and before Christ came. You are no longer strangers and aliens. He's speaking to the Gentiles. Before there was Jew and Gentile. Now you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In other words, the union that we have in Christ Jesus, the faith that we have in Him, transcends all the differences. In a church that is acting rightly and standing in grace properly, all the things that we look at each other and we say, we're different in wealth, we're different in prosperity, we're different in all of these other physical traits and attributes, they need to be pushed aside. Not like they're meaningless, but that is not the grounds of our unity. They never become the integral part of how we operate as the body of Christ. That means we don't single people out for those reasons. We don't exalt people because of those reasons. We don't put people down what James says in chapter 2. When the rich come among you and this is happening in the church. And you put them in the nicest seats because they wear the nicest clothing. And, and this is not how the church needs to operate and, and must not operate like that. You don't give people deference because of what they can give in physical or temporal qualities to the church. And if your brother comes to you, and they don't have clothing, and they don't have food, you don't turn them away and say, I hope you find what you're looking for, brother and sister. James chapter 2, again verse 15. Love means it doesn't matter what they come to you with, or lacking, or Whatever natural tendency you have to give them special treatment, rather we are to see each other, all of us, as family. Because we are. Remember that. You are. If you're in Christ, you then not only have a responsibility to love, you have an obligation, and you have the joy of doing so. Look around you and consider this. Look at the family you have. Think of that. You have people here, if we are living the way we are commanded to live, the way that God has saved us to live, you have people that will be by your side, though you have no relationship to them growing up, though you have a different background, though you may have a different sort of ideas about how life should look like in your home, you have different design patterns, whatever, all those silly things we get caught up on, you have people that will stand with you because Christ is in them as he's in you. So love one another as family. Second, outdoing honor. Verse 10, the end of verse 10. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Honor is something we don't talk about a lot in this culture. Honor means to recognize the value of some someone. And this is not merely done by designation, meaning you don't just place honor on somebody and think it in your mind. This honor is shown in practical ways. To honor someone is to be considerate, not merely of marring someone's reputation through slander, but to exalt them, to see, have them be seen as honorable persons through your speech and conduct and exhortation. Too often today, we do too much of speaking down about other people rather than using our speech to exalt them. In our conduct, we do the same. Now, everyone is due honor in a sense that everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone Every human being is honorable. They have intrinsic value to them because God has made us in his image. 1 Peter 2.17 says as much. We know we are to give honor to those who are esteemed, those magistrates and judges. That is a biblical principle, to honor those in authority. Even, Peter says, they're following in 1 Peter 2.17, to honor the magistrates, the emperor, the king, who is, who is supreme, the law of the land. We need to be honorable. Here's one thing that I want to suggest. I was pulled over the other night. Here's a great confession of speeding. And y- y- I, I don't know if you're this way. I get in this position, and I just feel so defensive. I was going through, you know, by the airport when you come, and you got Hanama Ulu, you got the light there, and so you got to go, you got to slow down to 35, who does that, right? You're going 50, you gotta go down to 35, and then it's 40 right afterwards. And so you're, you're like, what are you, a machine? You know, you gotta slow down to 35, go 40, and you're going 50. Well, I was going 54 in the 35. You know, he's in the 40, I'm pulled over in the 40. So all of these things are going through my mind. I'm ready to make my case, and I just, all right, I gotta shut my mouth. You know, and, and treat this man honorably. You know, the thing about police officers that we forget. With all their faults, and they have faults, every one of them are human. But their duty is to stand between you and criminal activity. They're a barrier between you and the person who wants to commit crimes. That's one of the you know, reasons they exist. So, so here I am in my self-righteous stance, but by God's grace, I didn't say anything. And he was merciful and gave me a warning, which was mercy in that. But, but aren't we... But aren't we so often in the moment when we feel like we're not right, we're so quick to take away any honor somebody is should should have. You know, as soon as somebody disagrees with us, that's it. I'm not going to honor you anymore. And and this honor is not it goes further than just being made in the image of God. It goes further than just being um, Somebody that's deemed to have authority or somebody important. It goes deeper for the church because if you don't honor each other, you don't honor Christ. You see, the Bible says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He loves the church. And when we dishonor each other in the church... You're dishonoring someone who Christ values. That song we sang, the, the, the last stanza, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. Meaning, when Christ laid down his life for you, that's where your value is enriched. It goes much deeper than the image of God that we marred. He loved you and gave himself for you. And so how, mu- how much ought we to see value in one another? It says about husbands and the way we ought to live towards our wives. It says we ought to honor them since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. You know, it talks about our wives and husbands and wives in that relationship. Naturally speaking, men are usually much bigger and more powerful than women. And one of the faults of marriages is often that men would be dominating and abusive because of that difference Paul says you better not he says you better not accentuate that weakness that God has placed them that is a benefit to you in the home and it's a benefit because God loves them you don't dominate them physically that should be a warning to all of us because it contradicts the honor of Because they are heirs with us of the grace of God, equal in their inheritance to us. Paul exhorts us to go the extra mile here. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, I'm competitive by nature, and so I sort of choke on the word outdo. If you read that, you're, well, okay, I'm going to outdo you. And now you're in in your mind, you're thinking somewhat competitively, how can I outdo them? And there's a danger I think somewhere in there, but understood rightly, I think this isn't, it's a, it's an convicting exhortation. This, this honor cannot merely be pandering. It's not hypocritical, verse 9, it's related to love. This should be a true esteem of each other, a true desire in us to show that person honor, to show each other honor to lift each other up. This is not patting everybody's egos. It's uplifting each other because of Christ's valuation of us. He loved us. He's fixed his value on each other, and so we need to be operating consistently in ways that seek to think in our minds, how can I show honor to this person? How can I lift them up? How can I show they are honorable? That's what he means about outdo one another. It's not just one time, it's continual. Third, Christian service, verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Now the apostle enters into uh, what the mindset and duty of our service to Christ might be. Remember verses 1 and 2 above uh, in Romans chapter 12, this is your reasonable service, the King James says in Verse 1, presenting your bodies a living sacrifice. That's true worship, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or spiritual worship. It can be rendered. The idea is there. It, It is a reasonable response of worship to give all of yourself to God. Here it is that we ought not to be slothful in doing so. This is a great problem that we have. Here we render... We, we see what's at stake here. We see how important it is that our service be a flame or a glow or fervent. Those words mean something as to the degree of fire kindled in us. It's service of our Lord. He says, serve the Lord there. Lord probably has reference to Christ, but certainly means God. We understand that. But that second phrase there, be fervent in spirit, is very interesting. We know that the service to the Lord references service to God, but there is some disagreement as to how we should see that term spirit there in the middle of that verse. It's the same word that we render with a capital S in many places when, with regard to the Holy Spirit. In fact, F.F. F. Bruce and Robert Muntz, who were both Greek Scholars translated this phrase be a glow with the Spirit capital S As in the Holy Spirit In verse 11 has to do with having the motivating fire of the Holy Spirit regardless of that how you capitalize or not that word spirit the motivating influence of the Holy Spirit ought to engage us such in the truths that we believe in and that we are established in in the mercies of God to diligently serve our Lord Jesus Christ. This service is worship. This is what God has saved us unto. This is, the apostle is, he is not merely saying that we need to be emotional creatures or he's not promoting an emotionalism. Because our fire here is lit by the Holy Spirit himself, the Spirit of truth. This is not running around without any idea of truth or idea of what is right and wrong or virtuous or not virtuous. This is not going crazy in our aisles and dancing and screaming and barking like we see in some traditions now. This is having a fire of reasonable, spiritual powerful truths in our hearts that we live informed with. So this is service that is rendered properly to our Lord. It's not lazy. Notice, it's not lazy. Do not be slothful in zeal. This is not done in laziness. We are to be active and energetic in our service to Christ. Not weary in doing well, Galatians 6.9 says. Lethargy in service to Christ is in danger of being proven loveless and faithless. Anybody who remembers what it's like to fall in love, remember that. What would you not do for that person? You were getting, some people are getting married. I don't want to point you out, but I mean, everybody looks to those, you know, to that stage where, you know, I, I mean, if you got a bank account, you will empty that thing in a moment, right? You're, you're, it's just, it, whatever is asked of you, you're doing it whatever's required of you, you're doing it. That's zeal. You know, when Christ loved us and gave himself for us, the Bible says he was rich and he became poor so that by his poverty we might be made rich. But now, here we're called to spend that wealth, that wealth of the doctrines that we are grounded in, the hope, the joy, we'll get to all those things, Not to rest in it and just gather all the comforts, the creaturely comforts in this world, but to see how we can expend ourselves for our Savior, for our Lord, spent and being spent for Him, for His sake. You know, one of the problems of American culture is that we are so in pursuit of creature comforts. And it stifles the Christian in our zeal for christ we just want to find a comfortable place to live a comfortable couch don't i know it i want a lazy boy never had one i have a recliner i'm thankful for it i want a lazy boy i can read really well in those things and they're comfortable and everything but life is not about getting that that's that's not what we should be driven by I wish I could remember the quote by Theodore Roosevelt that I just heard yesterday. It's incredible. He says, the destruction of America will come in the pursuit of creaturely comforts, safety at any cost, peace at any cost. You say, what? What are we going to give up to feel safe and to feel comfortable? One of the things we give up, and what I always bring up on Mother's Day as a country that we need to pray for is our mothers who think it's better to destroy life than to give life than to bring it into this world for creaturely comforts. Statisticians show that 90%, I believe, is of all abortions are done because they don't want the hindrance of a child in the home. And it's hard. We have four of them. It's not automatic. The fourth one's the hardest of all so far. I love her. But since when is life about not pursuing good, though it's hard to do. What has turned in us? We can't have it turn in us, Christians. We cannot be slothful and zeal. We cannot be lazy and lethargic. We cannot give up when serving Christ costs something and is hard. We need to both hear and be like Barnabas in Acts 11, 23 and 24. When Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all who had received the grace of God to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. In a sense, that's, that's why I preach to you. It's a good thing to come every week and hear and be reminded about how good and how pleasant and how perfect it is to dwell together in unity, to worship God with the way and the pattern of our lives and the songs from our mouth and the gifts from, and the the offering of our wallets and everything that we do to render service to him, we ought to do it with a sense of urgency. This is a day of hardness of hearts for too many believers and drowsiness of spirit. May God be gracious to set us aflame with service to him so that we can rejoice to see subsequent fruit that abounds to his glory. Just like back in Acts, after Barnabas exhorted them to these things, it says, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. You see, their steadfast purpose, their faithfulness, his exhortation to not be slothful and lazy, but be steadfast in your purpose. Be faithful to the calling to serve Christ, abounded to fruit, abounded with fruit. Now, fires can burn out of control. Zealous people can do so much to damage the name of Christ I don't know who he is but there's somebody in Lehui that holds the sign up Jesus is coming. And if you look at him, he will stare you down with with a face that that he you might think he might be the judge of all the earth himself. I don't know about you, but as a Christian, I look forward to the to the coming of Christ. Yes, there is an impending judgment for the world, but even this, even now, we need to approach that with the world. This is the day of your salvation. God is willing to forgive you now. There is a day where He's appointed that he'll judge the world in righteousness when he returns, but the coming of Christ is also joy. It should be something that we smile about and we look forward to and we pray about. So in our service, we cannot also in our zeal Contradict the Word of God. Oftentimes that is done in the zeal for, for service. So how do we serve? We serve by biblical faithfulness. You see, I think it's very interesting that Paul puts zeal for service in the middle of this categories of duties. What does he start with love, family love? If zeal isn't done with love, It's not zeal. Remember, all of the things that follow verses 9 and 10, love there, if they're not done in love, forget it. They're not worth anything. You can be as active as you want to be in service to Christ, and if you're not doing it in love, it's worthless. It doesn't mean a thing. It's not going to benefit anyone. We see this picture of service, and it's a good one to remind us of what is most essential to Biblical service, and that is biblical faithfulness. Luke 10, 38 and 42 through 42. Now, as they went their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she called her, and she called a sister, Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. You see, serving is a distraction. That's interesting. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. And the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion, portion which will not be taken away from her. Zeal for Christ is an informed zeal. It's a biblical fe- zeal. It's a zeal that won't then fade away when people oppose us because it's informed from scripture and it also will seek to sit at the feet of christ it's worship fourth the flavor of zealous service and we'll be quick through the rest of these verse 12 now i put this verse as you notice the title the flavor of zealous service because i think that what follows here are things that flavor our service I think that's why Paul puts them here. It's very hard to, to kind of dictate the order. Paul starts with love as first in order of importance. It's hard to dictate an outline here of any certainty. But I do think verse 12 relates to verse 11. He says, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope means that our zeal for service to Christ does not begrudge service. When we stand in the grace of God by faith in Christ Jesus, we serve the Lord, remember this, as freed people. Romans 6, 8 and 9 says this, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We now know that Christ being being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now we've died with Christ and we believe that we will also live with him. What does, the result, what does this result in? Romans 6, 17, and 18, of many things. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin. What does that mean for a Christian? Having become slaves of righteousness. Free, we are free to serve. Not sin, but Christ. And what does that lead to? Verses 22 through 23 in chapter 6. But now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So our service to Christ is freedom because we're not bound by the chains of sin and death. Which, sin which leads to death and the wrath of God. And this means our freedom in Christ leads to service of Christ with joy. Why is, why is joy intermingled? What's so crucial about joy? Because this service is done without vanity. There's no vanity in it. We can't lose anything. Eternal life is the end that Christ has won for us. Because chapter 12, verse 12 here, he says, Be patient in tribulation. Now let's see how joy and being patient in tribulation work together as we live this life out in worship and service to God. Chapter 5 of Romans. Go there. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Remember what we just saw. Our union with Christ means that we no longer are servants to sin and we no longer have the end of death or judgment upon us because christ, christ died for us and we died with him and he lives and we live in him but now we see then how that joy is also uh, in in relationship and in agreement with being patient in tribulation therefore since we have been justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the sufferings produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So this service that is set aflame by the Holy Spirit Here we have all of these things coming together. We can rejoice in the hope of of the glory of God, even in our sufferings. That's patience. Oftentimes, this endurance is, in fact, translated, patience. So the joy of our Christian service, of our Christian life, the rejoice of our hope, produces patience through tribulation We read that again in 2 Peter 1.3, that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory. So we don't become self-confident in all of this, and so we don't see that our joy and our patience through tribulations is something that is due to ourselves. He says here at the end of verse 12, be constant in prayer. This is the balance, isn't it? It brings us back to faith because prayer is an action, is an activity of faith. It's an expression of our dependence upon God. So our joy in service, our joy in hope, our patience in tribulation is not due to our inward ability, our inward capacity. Prayer means it's reverence back, it's reference back to God. When we pray, prayer in essence is is an act of dependence. So if we cease to pray, if we cease uh, to pray, as Paul tells us in another place, pray without ceasing. Here he says be constant in prayer. But if we don't see that prayer, this active, this continual action of our faith and this expression of our dependence upon God, we are in danger of seeing that whatever joy we have and whatever patience we have in our endurance is our own, is due to our own power. Prayer says no. We see it in you. The joy that we have in our hope, the patience that we'll have through tribulation, is because of you. It's because of Christ, and prayer brings us back there. Fifth and finally. I know this is sometimes hard to follow when you go from one topic to another, and it's It's very full, but we have to get through Romans one of these years, right? And so, I know this is hard to take these things in, but meditate on them. Read it again, the scriptures, as we go through it. What I'm going to do next in verse 13 is probably criminal. It's something that I'd like to give a full sermon on, but it's going to be quick. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show Hospitality there are two admonitions here first contribute to the needs of the saints This means that we are to share our goods among each other You know I talked with a christian Within the last year and he told me he never tells his children to share I don't want I they don't need to you know that's what's theirs is theirs I want them to make it altruistic you know determination if they want to share anything it's up to them that's not the way it goes for christians everything you have is given to you by god within the church if anybody lacks within this church and we do not seek to meet their needs we are a deformed and defunctional church and this is what i meant about not coming back to or coming back to verse 10 the love of family love the love, true love of verse 9, we do not love each other. If we could see, if somebody in this church was lacking of those necessities of life and we just turned the other way, you are not a church. We are not a church. We don't have the love of Christ. And here is scripture just laying it out. Contribute to the needs of the saints. This is not those saints who are canonized by Rome. This is you if you're in Christ. That's how Paul speaks about you in Romans 1-7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. God has set you apart. He has set his love and his redeeming love on you through Christ. Praise the Lord. I will tell you, since being at this church, not one need that has come up that could not be met by somebody has been left unmet. And I don't say that to boost your ego. I say that because God is at work in you. To God be the glory. Not one need. We've had a lot of them. Come across Kyle. Come across the deacons. Come across me. Come across you. And by God's grace, we've been able to meet them all. And more. May he continue that work in us. So that we will be faithful to fulfill this virtue this responsibility that we have now this is not to say that there's no responsibility either in the church Paul has a long portion in second Thessalonians all regarding slothfulness and laziness those people in the church who are not willing to work not that they can't work but they're not willing to and he says admonish them Separate yourself from them. Laziness is not a virtue. But if people aren't able to, if they need help, if, they are, if they're physical or if there are circumstantial issues that they cannot help themselves with, we need to be very quick to share whatever we have, whatever God has blessed us with, so that they and their needs are met. And here's what I mean about not doing this justice. And maybe we'll look into this further next week. He says here, seek to show hospitality. The Greek word is phyloxenia. So you have this word that means show kindness to strangers. And it's such an important aspect of our Christian life. And how we ought to think about how we are living our lives out in love. And it's so difficult to do today. You know, back in the early church, there weren't Weston's, Weston's. There weren't big hotels. There weren't condos that people, you know, we live in a traveling world over here. You mean we're expected to bring strangers in? Travelers? A lot of these people I don't want in my house. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, you think about bringing in strangers, what does this mean? In fact, I think we will look at what it means next week. Uh, Because I want to give it some justice, and I think maybe God will work on us. You know, God has given us our houses too. Don't we know it? Our family. And I've been praying, and I told my wife, I want our house to be a house of hospitality. And here, I understand better what that means. Not just people that you know, that you're comfortable with, that you, hey, you know their upbringing, you know their parents, and, ah, that's great, then come on in. We'll look at that more next week. But let me say this. It has to do with love and whether or not we love, like verses 9 and 10 tell us we ought to love.